Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us today. Now, as we near the end of our tour of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in the city of Philadelphia. Not the one in Pennsylvania, much to Caleb Dinsmore's chagrin, but Philadelphia a long time ago, other side of the world. Now, this Philadelphia was a young city, at least compared to the others that we've read about. It had a thriving Greek culture, leading some to compare it to the city of Athens. It was loyal to the city of Rome and a great outpost for trade. Some people called Philadelphia the gateway to the east. But there was one major hang-up for the city of Philadelphia, and that was this. It laid right on top of a major fault line, and twice the city had been almost completely flattened by earthquakes. But the church in Philadelphia was likely a small, struggling congregation. Jesus says they have but little power in their city. Much like the church in Smyrna, these Christians in Philadelphia have also been subject to persecution by the local Jews who rejected Christ. But in spite of these challenges, the church in Philadelphia had been a shining example of faithfulness. And because of that, Jesus gives them a strong reassurance and an important reminder. And they're the kinds of reassurance and reminder that every Christian and every church needs to hear from time to time, even to this very day, 2,000 years later. So with that, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this church family. Uh, As Joshua mentioned earlier, we aren't gathered here because we all look alike. We aren't gathered here because we all have the same interests or hobbies or common cause. Uh, More than anything, we are gathered here because we all worship you. And so, Father, I pray that as we worship you this morning, uh, as we look around the room and see our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that we would be moved and reminded uh, of who you are, what you've done for us, and why it is that we're here, why it is that we're gathered in this room, and that's to give you glory. Uh, But, Father, as we give you glory, uh, I pray that you would build us up. Uh, that you would encourage us and challenge us and convict us, grow us and shape us and mature us to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we read your word today, give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to what you have to say to us. Give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to what you have to say to our church, not just us individually, but us as a body of believers. And Father, may we leave here affected and changed and transformed uh, in even just the tiniest way uh, to look more and more like Christ. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name, who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. Amen. Well, starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, 
who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So of the seven churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3, only two of them receive no condemnation of any kind. The first is the church in Smyrna. We read about them a few weeks back. And the second one is today's church, the church in Philadelphia. So instead of condemning them, instead of calling them to repentance... Jesus takes a different approach with the church in Philadelphia. He focuses much more attention on commending them for their faithfulness and in encouraging them to keep it up. Now, it's true that this church might not be as large as the church in Ephesus. It might not be as accomplished as the church in Theatira. It might not have as much of a reputation as the church in Sardis. Honestly, compared to some of the others... The church in Philadelphia is just nothing to write home about. Except for this. They have been faithful. They have simply been faithful. Even though they're a small congregation. Even though they're facing persecution. Even though they have little to no power or influence in the city where God has put them. Even though they appear to be unremarkable. To their fellow residents in Philadelphia, even though they are nothing special by worldly standards, this church has been faithful and no one can take that away from them. So instead of condemning them, Jesus encourages them for their past faithfulness and he challenges them to continue in that same faithfulness moving forward. Now, we use the word faithfulness a lot In churches. But one theologian defined faithfulness in a really good way, I think. He said faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That's the calling issued to the church in Philadelphia. Keep his word, endure, hold fast, conquer, be faithful. And like the other churches in Revelation, Jesus promises them that it will be worth it. He says they'll be vindicated by their persecutors who say their faith in Christ isn't enough to be accepted by God. He says they'll be sustained and preserved through earthly trials coming their way. And then he says that someday they'll receive a crown. Someday they'll be marked forever as belonging to God for everyone to see. And someday they'll be welcomed. In a new, glorious, eternal city. 
Now that right there is the gist of the letter to the church in Philadelphia. At first glance, it doesn't appear to be much more here that we haven't already discussed in the past few churches, the five letters before it. If we wanted to, we could end right now and get to lunch a few minutes early, if you'd like. Don't actually answer that question. But I think if we did that, if we ended right now, we'd be missing out on something really great in this letter that we don't see in the other letters. There's a theme here that appears throughout that I think is worth talking about. And it's the core reassurance and the core reminder of the letter that we mentioned a few minutes ago. So let's look at it. Look back at verse 7 in Revelation chapter 3. In verse 7, Jesus says that he holds the key of David. That's an interesting phrase, the key of David. Now, as this holder of the key, Jesus emphasizes that he's in charge of a door. When he opens the door, nobody can shut it. When he shuts the door, nobody can open it. He is the bouncer. Now, what exactly is the key of David? Again, that's a strange phrase. And what door is Jesus even talking about? Well, the key of David is a somewhat obscure reference, hidden right in the middle of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 22, a man named Eliakim is prophesied to be a good steward of Jerusalem. Unlike the many wicked kings before him who invited God's judgment upon the city. And Isaiah's prophecy proves true. Eliakim becomes an important figure during the reign of Hezekiah, one of Judah's last good kings. That's a little bit about the key of David. But now look back at verse 12. Because in verse 12 we read that the one who conquers will be a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar in the temple of my God. Now, in the Old Testament and continuing into the New Testament, the temple was the most important place in the Jewish world. At one time, it housed the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious and sacred object ever created. Now, sadly, the Ark of the Covenant had disappeared generations earlier, though Indiana Jones might have some theories. But in addition to that... The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. So the Ark of Covenant is gone. The temple is rebuilt, but it's not as glorious as the original, not as big as the original. Now, in a perfect world, the temple would stand proudly, and the Ark of the Covenant would rest safely inside. In the Jewish imagination, these two things put together was the ideal symbolic presence of God on earth. The presence of God with his people. That's why they took the temple so seriously. Non-Jews were warned at the entrance not to come into the temple. Your average Jew could only enter certain areas, while most, most of the temple was off limits. There was only one day per year where one person could go into the innermost part of the temple, known as the Holy of Holies. That was the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could go in to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now, this temple had two pillars at the entrance. Remember, Jesus said that we will be like temple, excuse me, pillars in the temple of my God. And while it might sound a little bit weird, these pillars at the entrance to the temple had names. 
One of them was named Joshan. The other was named Boaz. Now, you might think that's kind of weird, but if you've ever named your car or any other inanimate object, you don't get to make fun of them for naming their pillars. The temple was important. They decided to name them. Just let it go. But now that we have some background on the key of David and the pillars of the temple, let's try to piece this all together. Let's try to figure out what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is saying two things, and these are the reassurance and the reminder of this passage. The first thing is this. Jesus controls access to God. Jesus controls access to God. He holds the key. And the door to God's presence is opened or closed on his terms and on his terms alone. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus make multiple claims kind of along these lines. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says, I am the judge, and God and I are a package deal. If you don't honor me, you don't honor him. And then just a few chapters later, John chapter 10, starting in verse 7, Jesus famously says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So here we have Jesus saying that he is the gate. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. And then finally, John chapter 14, verse 6, a verse that we might know pretty well. Jesus says there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the only way that someone can enter the eternal life that Jesus promises is by going through him. He holds the key. He opens the door. He shuts the door. He is exclusive. Now, naturally, this flies in the face of the common idea that Jesus is just one way among many. The idea that all paths lead to the same summit, and Jesus is someone that you can take or leave along the way. Now, if you hold the belief that Jesus really is the only way to God, someone may sarcastically ask you, well, who made you the gatekeeper? Well, none of us claims to be the gatekeeper, but we do follow the one who actually is the gatekeeper, the one who holds the key of David. Now, this idea that Jesus and Jesus alone controls access to God, that was just as scandalous to the Jews in Philadelphia as it is to many people today. But to the believers in that city, this idea that Jesus holds the key of David, it was actually quite reassuring. There's a pretty good chance that they had been kicked out of their synagogue by the Jews who hated them. And rejected Jesus. They had tried to banish these Christians from coming into God's presence in the best way they knew how. But Jesus looks at these Christians and he tells them not to worry. He reassures them that your persecutors do not control access 
to God. Their persecutors do not hold the key of David. They cannot shut the door to God's presence. Only Christ holds the key. Only Christ controls access to God. That's the reassurance. And then here's the reminder for them and for us. Jesus generously grants access to God to all who seek it through him. All who seek it through him. Now, what makes this so revolutionary and so important is that the Bible is full of examples of sinful mankind's separation from God. Three chapters into this massive book, Adam and Eve get kicked out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Moses is not allowed to see God's face. When Isaiah realizes in his vision that he's in the throne room of God, he cries, woe is me, because he knows he's not worthy to be there. When John had a similar vision at the beginning beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, he fell down as though dead. The Bible is full of examples of how sinful people like us are unworthy to even dare entering into God's presence. But here we read, and Jesus promises us, that through him we will be like pillars in the temple of his God. By Christ's broken body and shed blood, we are made fit to stand in God's presence forever. Somewhere that we never had any business being before. We mentioned earlier that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, one day per year. But at Jesus' death, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that curtain was torn. The curtain separating regular old sinners like us from God's presence, the curtain was torn in two. The author of Hebrews gets at this theme quite a bit in his letter. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who would have ever thought that sinners like us could even suggest drawing near to the throne of God with confidence? And yet that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says we do. Later in the book, chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, at one time, the idea of us drawing near to God with confidence, that would have been unthinkable. That would have been beyond arrogant, beyond presumptuous, and maybe even blasphemy. 
But because of Christ, we can approach his throne with confidence. Because of Christ, we can draw near to the presence of God. Because the curtain has been torn in two. But there's one more thing that makes that promise about us standing in the temple as pillars in God's presence. A little bit strange. That claim is a little bit strange because if you read on in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 22, we see this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, you will be like pillars in the temple of my God. But then in Revelation 21, we read that there is no temple. So, which one is it? Well, when Jesus talks about us standing in a temple, he's not talking about a building. In eternity, there's no need for a temple to represent God's presence because we are actually in God's presence. And as for the pillars, we're not talking about literal stone columns. Jesus' point is that we will be permanent fixtures in God's presence. Now, the people in Philadelphia knew all too well that even the most impressive temples and even the most massive pillars, they don't stand forever. Their history of earthquakes had proven that. But nothing in creation can block our access to God through Jesus Christ. For so long, sin prevented us from coming into God's presence. He is holy. We are common. He is pure, we are unclean. He is righteous, we are corrupt. For so long, our story was one of distance, separation, and divide. Adam and Eve lost access to God. Moses didn't get to see God's face. The temple only represented God's presence, and Isaiah and John could only have visions. But that's not our story anymore. Division, separation, distance, all that stuff. Because the curtain has been torn. The veil has been lifted. The gap has been bridged. And we can approach the throne of God with confidence. It's certainly not because of anything we've done. We're not any less sinful than Adam and Eve or Moses or Isaiah or John. But we get to come into God's presence because of what Christ has done for us. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Separation is no longer our story. Thanks to the blood and body of Christ. And one day we will be in God's presence once and for all. In all its glory and all its fullness. In that day we will be like pillars. Permanent fixtures standing in his presence. Serving, worshiping and honoring him forever. And the door to his presence will never be closed to us because Christ holds the key. The temple will not be ransacked by thieves or torn down by enemies or destroyed by an earthquake. You may have but little power. You may appear unremarkable to those around you. You may not be anything special by worldly standards. And the same may be true of our church. But we have been granted access to God by his son, Jesus Christ. And no one can ever take that away from us. So like the Christians in Philadelphia, 
May we live faithfully now, looking forward to that day. May we live faithfully now, in preparation to stand in God's presence forever. And may we live faithfully now, reassured and reminded that Jesus Christ has generously opened the door for us. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you that we can approach your throne with confidence. We have no right to come into your presence. We don't deserve to get even the tiniest glimpse of your glory. And yet, your son, Jesus Christ, has torn the curtain. We can come into your presence because of what he has done for us. We have been made new. We have been made pure. We have been made holy. We have been made righteous. And for that, we are grateful. And so, Father, I pray that we would live as people who can come into your presence, that we can live with confidence, we can live with joy, that we can be inspired to faithfulness, knowing what awaits us, knowing that our eternal reward of standing in your presence forever, that is its own reward. Just seeing your glory, seeing your beauty, seeing you in all of your fullness will be more than worth the challenges and the hardships of faithfulness right now. So, Father, I ask that you help us to live faithfully now with our eyes set on the future. May the reward that you have in store for us, secured for us by your Son, Jesus Christ, may that motivate us to faithfulness right now. We love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We're grateful that we can call you Father. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.